You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Today's passage is from Psalm 5. And I'll be reading the NIV. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, Lord, hear my voice. You hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait expectantly. For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord, detest. But I, by your great love, can come into your house. In reverence I bow down toward your holy temple. Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness, because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they tell lies. Declare them guilty, O Lord. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is good to be together here in the house of the Lord this afternoon. And at the same time, we come with, uh, with heavy hearts. We come as a community still reeling from the events of this, this past week um, that hit our neighbors to the north and the broader um, North Shore community really hard. And once more, we find that the passage that we're in this particular Sunday as we've been going through this series called Anatomy of the Soul in the Psalms hits us squarely in the midst of, I think, our pain, our longings, our, our frustrations. We can certainly cry out with the psalmist in some of the ways that you perhaps heard just read. We reflected last week on some of those words, how long, how long and find ourselves crying them out once more this week as well. Let us unite our hearts in praying for those that are still fighting for their lives, those that are um, healing after the, the injuries that they sustain. Let us pray for the family members and friends of those who have been lost. Let us pray for everyone who has endured this traumatic event, and children especially. Let us pray for first responders, for hospital staff, for trauma counselors, for everyone that is a part of, on the front lines, rendering and extending care. And let us pray for the healing of the Highland Park community and the rallying of the broader North Shore community as well. And for government officials who are part of the work of restraining evil and the flourishing of all, seeking the flourishing of all people, let us pray. 
I, this past week, we sent out um, a couple of ideas on, and we will try to do the, more of this too, about some of the practical ways that we as a church can, uh, can help. And one of them was with a particular counseling clinic up in Highwood that is, uh, there's a, a graduate of Trinity that is connected to that particular counseling center, and they are in need of a couple of things, but um, translators to help, particularly translating into Spanish, uh, counselors, other trauma counselors that would be willing to donate some of their time in these efforts as well. And really, any, anything um, from not only donations for that clinic, it's called Phoenix, phoenixclinic.org. And if you're interested or need more information on that, it can be found on um, our Facebook page. I'd be happy to talk to you more about that afterwards as well. But as we pray, let us pray, pray this prayer that is put together after, um, that is intended to pray after a mass shooting. And let us pray even as we approach the preaching of God's word that hits us, I think, right in this point of pain here this, this evening. Let's pray. O Lord, you who abhor those who murdered the innocent, be not deaf to our bitter cries. We pray, do not abandon us to our pain this day. Hear our raging words of protest, O God of Jacob. Heed our groans for justice and meet us in this lowly and desperate place. Awake, Lord. Rouse yourself. Deliver us from evil. For your name's sake. We pray this so that we might witness your might to save and your power to heal. We pray this in the name of our fortress and refuge. And, O oh God, as we come to you this evening to receive the food of your holy word, Father, thank you for meeting us in the midst of our, of our pain, of our longings, of our desperate cries, and would we unite our hearts with the psalmist in these cries, Lord, for who can stand in your presence? We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I mentioned, I think in light of the events of this past week, it is impossible to read a psalm like Psalm 5 and not think about that bloodthirsty act. We are left wondering, is God concerned with the evil and injustice of this world? And what's more, who is it that can even come into his presence? As we see in this psalm, Psalm 5 speaks of these things, for at the end of the day our hope is in the Lord in whom we find refuge because in the face of evil and pain and injustice, we can call upon him confidently, knowing that he hears our cries and that it is through his steadfast love that sinners like you and I can come into his perfect and holy presence. If you haven't already, please turn to Psalm 5. Psalm 4, as we saw last week, is an evening prayer, a prayer of trust as the, as the psalmist sinks into peaceful sleep. And then it's as if in Psalm 5, when he awakes, he turns to the Lord, he cries out in the, in the face of the evil in this world. And Psalm 5 is organized into what we might call five stanzas, five different sections and it's as though in these different sections, the psalmist looks in different directions 
In the first, the third, and the fifth stanza, it is as if the psalmist looks directly to the Lord, cries out in the face of, the, in the face of God. And then in the second and the fourth stanza, it is as if the psalmist looks to the wicked, gazes toward them to his left and to his right, as we will see in this psalm. These alternating views and the contrast that are woven between them give the psalm, I think, its power. It's Actually, I thought Peter, Peter Craigie did an amazing job of summing this up. I just thought I'd read his quote. Psalm 5 illustrates with clarity the, pol- the pol- polarity and tension which characterize certain dimensions of the life of prayer. On the one side, there is God. On the other, evil human beings. And the thought of the psalmist alternates between these two poles. He begins by asking God to hear him, but recalls that evil persons have no place in God's presence. He turns back to God again, expressing his desire to worship and his need of guidance, and then is reminded of the human evils of the tongue. Eventually, he concludes in confidence, praying for protection and blessing. You might have gotten a sense of that sort of, sort of whiplash even as the passage was read, but that's the, the way that we're going to approach this, this particular psalm. I found, actually, I found the writings of James Montgomery Boyce, Boyce incredibly helpful in thinking through this psalm in particular. But let's look at that first, that first gaze, if you will. The psalmist looks to the Lord and cries out for his God and king to hear him, verses one through three. Psalm five could be considered another one of these prayers of laments. We've been in this little section in the Psalter with these kind of coming in rapid fire succession. Similar to the beginning of Psalm 4, Psalm 5 begins, listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait expectantly. These opening verses teach us, I believe, three important lessons related to prayer. And the first is that I think they teach us how we should pray. Words here give us a sense of urgency expressed by this bold request to listen, to hear, to consider. These are the cries that the the psalmist cries out. He is not simply going through the motions. He is not like checking off a list. He comes in desperation, in intensity, and in seriousness. And it forces us to consider when we cry out to the Lord in prayer, do we Are we urgent in the prayers that we bring before our God and King? Not only should we pray with urgency, we should pray with persistence. I believe this is emphasized by the repetition of that phrase, in the morning, verse three, in the morning. The force behind this phrase is like saying, as soon as it is morning and every subsequent morning, in the morning, certainly a a good time to go to the Lord in prayer, but this is no mere formula. Charles Spurgeon, in writing on this, says, prayer should be the key of the day and the lock of the night. Devotion should be both the morning and the evening star. Are we persistent in prayer even when the answer seems delayed? Urgency, yes, persistency, and third, expectancy. 
as the end of verse three highlights. The psalmist prays in faith and waits with an expectant heart for the Lord to answer. Do we really believe God is capable of intervening when we pray? Are we willing to wait, oh boy, that word, to wait with expectant hearts upon our God and King? These are some of the ways that this psalm teaches us how we should pray. But second, verses one through three teach us the ways that we should pray. We can pray with spoken words, as verse one reminds us. These might be more well-articulated, thought out, or even set prayers that are used to express our hearts to the Lord. But not only can we use words, we can use cries. Cries in distress. Sometimes all we can do are are desperate cries for God to come to our rescue and praise God that he hears our cries, that he answers us when we call upon him. But there's there's a third way that we can pray, and that is with sighs. The word translated lament in verse one means sigh or groan or murmur. It is also found in Psalm 38, verse 9, that says, All my longings lie before you, Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. There are times when there are no words to express the deep anguish that we experience. This is one of those weeks. God hears even the inarticulate sighs of an agonized soul. Words, cries, and yes, sighs, groans. God hears all kinds of prayers as reflected in all the kinds of prayers that make up the book of Psalms. And even when we do not know what to pray, as Paul reminds us in Romans 8, 26, the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Through wordless groans. So not only does this psalm teach us how we should pray, but the kinds of prayers we should pray, but they teach us about the relational roots, the relational rootedness of our prayer. The psalmist addresses God as Lord. This is his covenantal name, using his personal covenantal name, Yahweh. He does so in verses one and three. And in between, he calls him my God and my king. Actually, flip that, my king and my God. Addressing God as king reveals his confidence in his dominion and power, the dominion and power of God to answer his prayer. And addressing God using the Hebrew word Elohim, my king and my God, refers to the almighty and sovereign one, the all-powerful ruler of the universe, the Lord who is our creator, the Lord who is our sustainer, can be approached in peace personal terms. He did not simply spin the universe into existence and then walk away. No, he is imminent. He is near. And he hears us when we cry out to him. He can be approached in personal terms. Derek Kidner, in writing on this, writes, the covenantal relationship expressed by the repeated my in the phrase, my king and my God, gives the prayer a firm footing And the use of the word king puts David's own kingship into its right context. I I believe that's important because this is a psalm of David. 
and he recognizes God as his king and his God. Do you? Do I? Is he your God and king? Is he mine? Well, the entire psalm really goes on to unpack what is the spirit of that phrase, my king and my God. And so second glance or second gaze, the psalmist glances at the wicked and recognizes that it is impossible for them to stand in God's presence. Verses four through six. Look at those words, these verses. For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord, detest. The psalmist is confident because he knows that you are not a God, as he says, you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. Verse four. And in rapid fire, he gives these five types of evil people, moving from more general terms to stronger, more descriptive terms in the process. From evil people to the arrogant, that is, boastful people who are opposed to God. It's, it's similar to the mockers in Psalm 1. Evil people, the arrogant, all who do wrong, those who tell lies. This is more than just the occasional slip-up. This is more framed in the context almost of like a legal setting, that of bearing false testimony, slanderous statements. In violation of the ninth commandment, we just heard of, of those commandments as we had our kids' moment here together this evening. In fact, a lot of those commands bear directly on this passage as we see. And yes, even the bloodthirsty and deceitful. I can't help but think of those who engage in mass shootings as fitting that description. The bloodthirsty in violation of the sixth commandment. These are words that describe the status of those who reject God's kingship and, are, and engage in evil ways that stem from that rejection. These are status terms, if that makes sense. And what's more, the reminder of how God views sin grows in intensity, it crescendos even in these verses, from not pleased with wickedness to you hate all, do, all who do wrong to you destroy those who tell lies. That phrase, you hate all who do wrong, the sense there is that God despises their wicked character and actions and actively opposes and judges them accordingly. Whether or not David is describing actual enemies he is up against or speaking in more general terms, I believe these, this description serves as a paradigm for those who cannot stand in God's presence. And like the psalmist, we can join in lamenting murderers, human traffickers, mass shooters, all perpetrators of evil. And yes, we can lament the evils of society, such as racism, poverty, and corruption that is caused by those that he laments as well. Ultimately, God is perfect in his holiness and completely untainted by evil. And so nothing tainted with sin can enter into his presence. And that's at the very heart of this psalm. What hope is there for coming into God's presence. 
in the third gaze, the psalmist lifts his gaze once more to the Lord. The psalmist looks to the Lord and recalls the Lord's abundant, steadfast love, which allows him to stand in the presence of God. Verses seven and eight. But I, by your great love, can come into your house. In reverence, I bow down to your, toward your holy temple. Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. That first phrase there, but I, draws attention to the contrast between the evildoer's actions and that of his own, the psalmist. Verse 7 is at the heart not only of this psalm, but it is at the heart theologically of the point that he is making here. In the face of describing the evil actions of those who cannot stand in God's presence, you might almost expect him to then extol his own virtue that makes it possible for, for him to stand in God's presence. But that's not what he says. What does he say? But I, by your great love. The ESV renders that through the abundance of your steadfast love. It is only by the grace of God that we are able to come into God's presence. And the proper posture for being in his presence is that, is that described here, that of bowing down in worship and in awe. Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness. The psalmist recognizes that this has nothing to do with the righteousness of his own. It is completely because of the Lord's righteousness. And make your way straight before me. This echoes Psalm 1 the path of the godly versus the path of the wicked. And he prays that God would cause him to walk in the Lord's way, this way that is morally right, straight. These are not viewed as a necessarily a, a temporary act of worship. The terms that are used in these verses have to do with a perpetual state of being. We'll come, we'll come back to this thought at the end. But suffice it to say that it is because, because of the sheer grace of God, his abundant, steadfast love, that the psalmist can come into the very throne room of God. He who is holy. The Lord who is perfect in his holiness. The fourth gaze, it's as if the psalmist once more glances toward the wicked and pleads for God's justice in the wake of their rebellion. Verses 9 and 10. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they tell lies. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. There is a marked shift here from the evil deeds described in the earlier gaze to their evil words. And a heart that is filled with malice that these words come from. You know, the human heart is a lot like the roots of a fruit tree. And the heart is the source of our will and the center from which our actions flow. When a tree's roots are rotten, the fruit is bad as well. And in a similar way, a rotten heart is displayed through what the psalmist describes here. These terms, notice the t these terms that are piled up that all have to do with the process of, the, of a speech act. Terms like mouth, tongue, throat. Their throat is an open grave. 
This is an extended metaphor that points to how the human throat resembles a deeply dug grave. Paul cites this, this same verse this, in Romans 3.13 alongside a few other Old Testament passages to show that everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, is under the power of sin. And he goes on to show that righteousness is not achieved by the keeping of the law, but by Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross. Spoiler alert. <laughs> the psalmist here is like, like a modern-day prosecuting attorney establishing the grounds for his case before God and pleading for God as his king, as his judge, to return a guilty verdict. And yes, even banishing those who are in a state of rebellion. These are, these are harsh terms. We will see more of these as we go through, our, go through the Psalms together. But I think it's important to see how the psalmist does not take matters into his own hands or enact or seek his own vengeance. He asks God to be true to his promises. He asks God to, to assert, to do what he has asserted he will do. As God, as we know from Deuteronomy 32, it is mine to avenge, the Lord says, I will repay. The psalmist is motivated not by personal animosity, but by rebellion that is done against God. Did you notice that? At the end of verse 10, for they have rebelled against you. I think in looking at these verses, we need to be reminded again and again of the power of the tongue to harm. James, I just think about a passage like James 3 that reminds us of that. And not only that, but this passage reminds us of the prayers, the kinds of prayers we should pray when we encounter the evils, the effects of evil in our fallen world. It is a reminder, too, that we do not take matters into our own hands. We do not seek personal vengeance. For vengeance is mine, I will repay. We are not motivated by personal wrongs. We are, we are motivated ultimately by their rebellion against God. This request that we pour out alongside the psalmist is for God to be true to his very character, to be true to his promises found throughout the pages of Scripture. And in the end, the psalmist looks to the Lord once more and rejoices in his protection and his blessing. Verses 11 and 12 but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. The psalm here ends in this upturn and no longer is it just the psalmist's lone voice but he joins with the whole company and together praising God. Did you notice those terms, those terms of praise? Be glad, ever sing for joy, rejoice, jo rejoice in the Lord. And the psalmist ends by recognizing two things that he is absolutely sure about. And that is that God protects all who take refuge in him. All of those who are recipients of his grace, of his steadfast love, this is expressed 
you know me, I have to sneak this in. This is expressed in somewhat military terms. Here, terms like take refuge, spread your protection, you surround them, and yes, the phrase as with a shield. Spread your protection can be used to describe of donning protective gear, that is battle, battle rattle, you know, what is needed by a soldier when they, when they face combat. Asking for the Lord to spread his protection around them. The phrase, you surround them, can not only be used of enemies who surround, as, they, as it's used previously in the Psalms, but in this case, it is the Lord who surrounds, as with a shield. The word, this shield here, is not the small shield used, I believe, in Psalm 3, but of the larger shield that is placed in front of a soldier to protect his entire body. God protects all who take refuge in him. And the second thing that the psalmist emphasizes here in this final verse is that God pours out his blessing on all who take refuge in him. He is a just king. You see this in the phrases, you bless the righteous. The phrase, your favor. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. With the psalmist, we can boldly declare that all who take refuge in him receive both protection and his presence. And the word ever kind of We might miss it. We might just glance over it if we're not careful. But that word ever reminds us that those who find refuge in the Lord have a lifelong source of joy, have a lifelong source of protection. Let them ever sing for joy. At the end of the day, this psalm, as so many of the psalms do, just drips with the gospel. It drips with God's gospel of grace. It points to our God who hears our cry, who reigns as king and is perfect in his holiness. It points to the God of steadfast love, the God of righteousness, of justice, and the one in whom we can find refuge. But it also reveals more about our predicament, our own rebellion before our king and our God. Psalm 5 does not shy shy away from the wickedness and the evil that is present in this world. And it reminds us that there is so much to lament. Creation groans, as we are reminded. Fallen human beings cannot stand in God's presence. For as verse 10 reminds us, we have all rebelled against God. Nowhere is this highlighted perhaps more than in Romans 3. And if you would flip over to that passage, the passage that Paul picks up this verse, verse 9, and quotes it in the longer passage having to deal with how all people, Jew and Gentile alike, are far from God and are deserving of his wrath. Look at Romans 3, starting in verse 9. What then shall we conclude? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. 
There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the ways of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says that those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. This psalm reminds us that it is only by God's great love displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ that we can come into God's holy presence, that we can be a part of his family and find a home. Find a home. And Christ's perfect sacrifice is what allows us access to the Father and ensures even that our prayers are heard. Come home. For as Romans 3 21 and following reminds us, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness as at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the gospel. And so our heart and our response seen in this psalm is to cry out to, the God, cry out to God for help, to pray for God's justice to be done, yes, to worship the Lord in reverence and in awe, and to take refuge in the Lord and rejoice in Him always, but ultimately to find that it is His grace offered through the cross that makes it possible for us to stand. That question of who can stand in God's presence is answered that it is only through the cross. It is only through his grace that we can stand. What's more, this prayer, actually Peter Craigie reminds us once more, the prayer is not only for protection from wicked persons, but also a prayer for protection from becoming like them. Those who use their tongues to exult in God cannot use them to boast and flatter. And so a psalm like this is also not only a psalm to pray for protection, but is also a psalm that causes us to engage in self-examination as well. How do we use our tongues? What do our actions show? The request here is not only for forgiveness, but deliverance. Our hope is grounded in God's perfect, unchanging character that is not tossed to and fro, that is not based on our circumstances. Those who experience God's steadfast love are clothed in his righteousness and take refuge in him and find our hope in our holy God and King 
because he is completely incompatible with evil. And yes, because he is relentlessly good and loving. This love that will not let us go, as Paul reminds us later in Romans 8, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen, church. Let's say that once more. Amen, church. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for your abundant, steadfast love. And we praise you that you are perfect in your holiness. And we praise you that these two things coincide together. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that it is on the cross that you demonstrated both God's love and God's justice. And oh Lord, thank you for making a way for us to be reunited with you through the person of your son, Jesus Christ. Through his perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. We worship you. Even as we come in a few moments to your table, we reflect on all that you have done to pour out your relentless grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.